I'm thrilled to have uh, author Alison Gopnik in the studio with me today, who's going to tell me a little bit more about her book, The Gardener and the Carpenter. This book is a sort of a look at parenting, I guess. And so I think we should probably start with this word parenting, first of all, because I know that it's a word that you don't like, um, because, of course, parent is a noun. Parenting is a, is a verb and maybe shouldn't be a verb. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Well, one of the interesting things that I discovered is that the very word parenting and the word parent used as a verb that goes with parenting is a very recent invention. It only shows up in 1960, and, um, and it's only become popular in the past uh, 30 years and mostly in America. So it suddenly skyrocketed into prominence towards the end of the 20th century. And before then, of course, mother and father are as old as the English language, and yeah. parent has been around for a long time. But people talked about being a parent or being a mother or being a father um, rather than parenting, rather than doing this thing that you're supposed to do uh, to children to make them come out a particular way. Mm. And words are words, but I think this is a case where the word reflects a changing vision in the culture of what being a parent is all about. And it's very much about sort of doing something. Um, and from this being horribly reductive about your book, we have mm -hmm. this sort of these two different types of parenting, we might say, the, the gardener and the carpenter. In, in its sort of simplest form, would you explain a little bit about the difference between those two approaches? Well, really, the inspiration for the book came because I'm a developmental scientist. So for the past 30 years, I've been one of the people who's been part of this great revolution in our understanding of babies and young children. And I have been doing research and wanted to write a book about how children learn and specifically how children learn from the adults around them. Mm. Um, and one of the things that really struck me as I did the research, both my own research and looked at the literature in evolutionary biology and other places, is how different the scientific picture is from this kind of cultural picture that has developed in the last 30 years or so. And the cultural picture, as I say, is this kind of carpentry picture where the idea is that if you just can get the right techniques, read the right books, find the right apps, um, you can make your child come out in a particular way, yeah. better or smarter or more successful. It's not quite clear better than what, although <laughs> I think we whisper under our breath, better than that other child next door. Um, but there's there's this vision that that's what being a parent is about. And I think there's some good sociological reasons for that. I think it's partly because at the end of the 20th century, for the first time, people were raising children who hadn't actually ever cared for children before, but had spent a lot of time working and going to school. And mm. the carpentry model is kind of the working and going to school model. The picture that came out of the science was very different. And it was much more like the picture of what you do as a gardener. So a gardener, as any gardener knows, you work incredibly hard and you're up to your neck in manure most of the time and um, and nothing comes out the way that you want it to or expect it to. And that's true about the awful things that happen in the garden, but it's also true about the good things that happen in the garden. Yeah. And there's actually a deeper reason for that. And the scientific reason is that a garden is really an ecosystem. A garden is really about creating a system of enough variability and possibility and change that it's resilient in the face of the things that happen across the seasons or across time. That's a, a, a 
natural biological ecosystem has this quality where the messiness, the variability, the change is is exactly what makes the system resilient. And Mm. really what a good gardener tries to do is to create that kind of ecosystem. And when you looked at the science, it seemed more and more as if that's really what the role of caregivers is for human children, that this very long period of childhood we have, much longer than any other animal, is really designed to provide a period in which you can generate lots of variability and possibility and messiness. And the caregivers are there to provide an environment that's safe enough and rich enough that that kind of variability and messiness can thrive. So Mm -hmm. what you're really trying to do as a caregiver is, is create a particular kind of protected ecosystem. You're not trying to create a particular kind of outcome. You're not like the wonderful um, British phrase is uh, hothousing. You're not trying to create the one perfect orchid. And one of the things about the one perfect orchid is if a cold breeze comes by, then so much for the one perfect orchid. (laughs) Um, Whereas you have a nice, messy cottage garden and it can deal with pretty much everything, even the English weather can handle that. In your book, there's sort of these three, I guess we call them almost contradictions that are to do with parenting. The first one I wanted to talk about is independence and dependence, because of course, when a child is born, it is completely dependent on its parents, on its mother in particular, to survive. But then, of course, through childhood, what we're trying to do is to sort of foster this independence in, in children. Now, as a parent myself, I know that there's a real conflict going on there because you want to look after your child, but you don't want to sort of constrain it too much. But it's so hard to get that balance right, isn't it? Yeah. Part of the book comes from a, a philosophical uh, place as well as coming from the science. And part of the reason why the parenting model, I think, is is unfortunate is not just because it gets the science wrong, but it also just doesn't get at the moral complexity and depth and reality of what it's like to be a parent. Mm. So the carpentry model, if you think about it as this kind of goal-directed thing, you could say, okay, I did it well because, look, my child came out this way, or, oh, no, I screwed it up because my child came out this other way. Yeah. And that's just not right. That's not what it's about. Um, What it's about is going from this situation in which this baby is totally dependent on you and in some ways your life is governed by care of this child. And that's not just true for moms. It's anyone who cares for a child. Doing a bad job of being a parent is harder than anything else that you're ever going to do a good job of. Um, It requires more time and energy and dedication. Um, And you... The point, but the point of all that dedication is to create a creature at the end of the day who can be totally different from the way that you pre- predicted that they were going to be. Create a creature who, you know, if you send, get an affectionate, occasional affectionate text from a dif- distant city, you're doing quite well with your, <laughs> uh, with your adult children. Um, so that makes it a very different, and I think much kind of deeper um, human activity than this vision, which is just the vision of, yeah, your job is to shape a child into an adult of a particular kind. Mm. Now, you were just saying there about, uh, you know, providing an environment where they can do something different. And that's another of these conflicts, isn't it? So we have these things that we want to pass on to our children. Mm -hmm. Well, this is a a good way to behave. These are our values. So that you might term as being sort of traditional things. But then... 
they're going to have their own ideas about the world. And of course, the world, especially now, changes so fast that they're going to have their own innovations as they go along that will challenge your traditional values. Yeah, so that's another one of the deep tensions about being uh, a parent, parents and children, is this tension between innovation and tradition. And from a scientific perspective, that's built into the very nature of being human. Mm. So there's increasing arguments that humans have a kind of cultural niche, that being able to pass on culture in the way that we do is one of the things that is most distinctive about us. Other animals can do it too, but none of them do it as much as we do. Mm. But there's a really curious thing about culture, which is there would be no point in passing things on if no one ever innovated, if everything just stayed the same. Mm. So one idea is that this long protected period of childhood that we have is exactly a mechanism that enables both the transmission of information and values and culture from a previous generation and also enables innovation in a safe space where you can try something new that might work and might not work. And of course, we're very conscious of this now in an age of you know, Silicon Valley and information technology and change. But that's always been the way that human beings have worked, even if it was making a different kind of arrow or even more important, making a slightly different social uh, network or social structure. Mm. Um, There's always been what uh, uh, biologists call this ratchet effect, where each generation takes can take all the things that the previous generation did for granted and then provide changes and variation and innovation. And again, it it leads to this tension if you're trying to describe what it is that you're doing as a parent because you are trying to pass on. It's important for you to pass on your values and knowledge and information, but you have to do it in the light of knowing that what's going to come out at the other end is really different from anything that you know. So there's a kind of, there's a lot of humility built into being a parent. <laughs> I just wonder as well, you just talk about that, that long period of childhood and uh, the safety net that you're creating is also almost there for the parent as well because if the if there is this innovation, if the child is going to challenge those traditional values, it gives time f- for the parent as well perhaps to sort of adjust to this new relationship, this new world and these new ideas that, that might be a challenge to them as well. Yeah, I think that's right. So one of the things that we do is we, uh, you know, we have these children who start out being the most intimate in the most intimate relationship you can ever be with a, a newborn baby, and then become these emissaries from the future. Um, they're really sort of strangers from this foreign country that's to come. And I think that's challenging in some ways, but it's very satisfying in other ways. It's the way that we human beings, and again, we very characteristically can imagine what's going to happen in the future, think about the future. And having children and having children who are different from us is a way that we connect to uh, as a way that we connect to the future. So even if we could accomplish this task, this parenting picture where we could shape our children to come out a particular way, we'd be defeating the whole point both from an evolutionary point of view and I think from a sort of philosophical point of view too. Mm. Um, the whole point, the reason why having children is so satisfying is because they, they connect us to this unpredictable future. I'm going to talk about what I think is maybe the overarching theme of the book in a way, which is which is to do with love, it's to mm-hmm. do with the nature of love. And you make a very important point about the love that people feel towards their children, which is that, of course, we feel very differently about our own children than we do mm-hmm. about other children. There is something sort of obviously different about how 
parents love their own children. And we don't spend an awful lot of energy, of course, looking after other people's children. We might do within a sort of an extended group, but of course, people are fiercely protective. And I remember, again, being a parent myself, even, even as a father, I think it's probably even more so for a mother, that you, at the beginning, feel like you would literally throw yourself in front of right. a moving car to sort of protect your child. Um, that that specificity of love is very important, isn't it, when it comes to being yeah. I mean, it, one of the there's a there's an it's an interesting biological question about why is it that we make these, as you say, you know, incredibly intense commitments where we just sort of take it for granted that you you know give your life for this child, um, um, and it's not just mothers and not even just mothers and parents. As, as a grandmother, um, it was really dramatic. You know, one day I'm just relatively happy-go-lucky grandmother and two days later this baby is born and I would give my life for this baby. It's mm, it's mm. a really remarkable thing. And it's this baby. Um, and again, I think this is part of the reason why the parenting picture is, is so much the wrong picture. You know, you'd think if you really wanted to just make the best grown-ups, what you do is, you know, pick out the children that are have the best prospects and you'd put all your energy into them and you just kind of discard the rest of them. But of yeah. course, that's absurd. The commitment to this individual child is independent of all of the features of that child. You know, we have this lottery of here's the genes and here's the genes of the parent and here's the Mm. environment. And that feels like it's a very haphazard process. But if you think about it from the broader biological picture, just like the lottery of of, uh, genetics in general, it's exactly that that gives us the diversity and gives us the variability Mm. so that when things change, when the environment's different, we we know that there's going to be the right temperament or the right uh, skills around to be able to uh, uh, allow us to survive. Now, that's the long evolutionary picture, but the way it translates into individuals is that we have this ferocious individual moral commitment. And I think I think it also, there's something satisfying about the fact that um, parents and being a parent, and again, this is in the broadest sense, caring for a child, makes you recognize that each one of those individual children is in- incredibly valuable. Um, it would be nice if you could feel that way about all your fellow human beings. That's probably not practical. But at least you can get a taste of, uh, of I don't know, a bodhisattva's attitude towards children in the context of, say, taking care of a, mm. a particular two-year-old or a three-year-old. Mm. And, and it's sort of striking that in spite of the parenting um, view, which makes parents feel so anxious and guilty a lot of the time, um, when you see, say, someone who's caring for a child who's ill and going to die or someone who's caring for a child with disability, we feel as if that's like the best example of what it means to be a parent. That's not a failure of being a parent. That's, mm. that's, the, best, that's the best version of what it means to be a parent, to care for somebody. Mm. Um, so that's another sense in which I think the parenting model makes people kind of miserable without purpose, without without making the without really capturing the thing that's important about relations between parents and children. Now, how do, as an anxious parent, (laughs) (laughs) what I mean by that is, because I don't think I'm terribly anxious, but I remember seeing a a study which had asked basically different generations of people to look at a map of where they used to live and to basically mark out the places where they used to play as children. And if you go back to the 1950s, after after the Second World War, children were playing all over the place and several miles away from their home on a regular basis, unsupervised, just left by their parents to get on a bike and cycle off somewhere and amuse themselves all day. 
And as time goes by, that sort of circle of, of playing area around the house just shrinks and shrinks and shrinks until there are now a generation of children who actually don't leave the house unsupervised. Yeah. They are always being watched by parents, even in their own garden. Is that the wrong way round? Do we need to get used to sort of allowing our children to, to explore on their own? But how do we do that without worrying that they're going to get knocked over by a car yeah. or stolen by a paedophile or whatever it might be? Because those are the sort of worries that are sort of amplified by the media, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Are, are we crazy? Is it that dangerous out there? Or Well, I think that data are that it's not that dangerous out there. I mean, if you look at things like crime rates have been steadily going down, you mm. know, worldwide and certainly in, in middle class America and England where that those fears are the most intense. Um, and I... I think there's actually a danger that it's sort of the equivalent of the hygiene hypothesis hypothesis about allergies. You know, this is the hypothesis that by protecting children from all these microbes, the result is that they end up with an overactive immune system that's always looking for danger even when <laughs> there's no danger to be had. And that's yeah. more life-threatening than the microbes would be. And I think there's a real danger of a sort of psychological version of that where by being so concerned to try to um, uh, cut down risk, we end up with children who are terrified of things that aren't even right. uh, uh, that aren't even risky. But of course, if you're a parent, trying to negotiate that balance is in- incredibly difficult. The trouble is, I think the parenting picture doesn't help any. I think I think those two things go very much hand in hand, and mm. you end up with um, middle class and upper middle class children who have this very narrowly restricted life because they've got you know every minute from the time they finish school is scheduled with activities, right. and then you've got poor and um, um, uh, disadvantaged children who have an even narrower life because things are dangerous and and they have parents who are doing three jobs and there's no one there to look after them. So on both dimensions, the exploration of possibility, which is the most characteristic thing of childhood, the whole point of childhood, is exactly the thing that gets gets terribly narrowed with the the parenting view. Now, I, I was joking about being inter- you know, massively reductive about your book earlier, but th- one of the great comforts about reading it is that Essentially, as a parent, you're being told that if you love your children, which of course you do naturally, (laughs) and you just let them get on with it, that that is actually the best way for them to learn and to develop and to live a happy childhood. Yeah, I mean, I think the science is so wonderful, partly because it's wonderful the way science always is wonderful to find out just how complicated and interesting and powerful uh, the learning is that's going on with children. But it's also comforting because it means that, you know, the children will get on with it. You know, mm. you can, you can, they'll, they'll do, they're naturally designed by evolution to do a lot of that work of learning and developing. And, um, and parents are quite good at naturally loving them. That that's the that's kind of the easy part. Um, so I I do think it's as if uh, the culture makes up this special terrible task that the parents have to have to do. That is you know nothing that we can teach our children is going to be even in the same ballpark as the amount that they can just learn. Mm-hmm. And and part of what I do in the book is describe these amazing studies that show that even, say, two- and three-year-olds learn just from watching what other people are doing more than from anything else. Right. And they learn in incredibly subtle ways from watching what other people are doing. They can they can tell whether you're doing something on purpose or by accident or right. whether you're doing something that's intentional or whether it's a ritual that you're doing that doesn't isn't supposed to have an outcome. Three-year-olds can do this. And three-year-olds can take all that information, combine it with 
the things they found out by playing in the world and use it to construct this new picture of the world, which is a bit different from the picture of the world that their parents might have had. Mm. Um, and all that's unfolding just in the course of your doing the dishes, getting the laundry done, um, doing the shopping, all the things that you have to do anyway. That's much more powerful and important and significant for learning than all the things that parents beat themselves up about, um, feeling that that's their job to, to do. Mm. Well, words of comfort for me, sir. <laughs> Hopefully words of comfort to any parents listening as well. Um, thank you so much, Alison. It's really good to speak to you in a bit more depth about all of the themes in the book. And I shall enjoy being a gardener rather than a carpenter. <laughs> well, the, the best bit is the grandchildren. I, that's what I can highly, I can highly, uh, <laughs> this, is, this is perhaps not very practical advice, but. That's really the dessert that you get at the end of the process. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, Alison, thank you so much. Thank you.